0: Tonight we begin our study in Matthew chapter 24, and before we begin the chapter, I have to explain that we're going to make it not even halfway through the chapter here this evening. Uh, th- this chapter is so significant that it's going to take us a couple sessions to get through it. But the other thing I have to explain is that Matthew chapter 24 deals with issues of biblical prophecy. Jesus is talking about things that will happen in the future from the time he says them. Now, whenever you're talking about biblical prophecy, you run into uh, great controversy among Christians. Different Christians uh, who love the Lord, who are serious about the Bible, look at prophetic things in very different ways. And in the particular chapter that we have before us tonight, there are two very different ways of looking at this chapter. One chap, one way, which I'll be mentioning throughout our study occasionally tonight, is to see the events that Jesus speaks about in this chapter all or mostly all fulfilled within the first century A.D. In other words, uh, mostly before 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was conquered. The other way of looking at this chapter is to look at it speaking in some way of those events that would happen some 40 years after Jesus' death, but in the bigger picture having to do with events that to our day have not yet transpired, events of the very end time before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now let me come right out and say that second category is the one that I believe is the proper way to understand this chapter. But I want to start off just by saying that those who would disagree with me on this, I don't uh, seek to question their love for the Lord. I don't seek to question their uh approach to the scriptures. I just happen to believe that they're wrong. And I do teach that they're wrong as we teach our way through this chapter. I'm not what some people would call a prophetic agnostic where you're just supposed to come to these po- passages that speak about prophecy and say, well, this guy has this opinion and this guy has another opinion, who can know who's right? Well, I hope I say this without arrogance, but but I think that I can understand and that we can understand, not every last detail about biblical prophecy. Please, I, I don't think that for a moment. But in the big picture, I, I believe that if we just let the scriptures speak for themselves, it's clear enough. And so with those sort of, uh, you know, caveats out of the way, I, I want to get into this very important and, to me, incredibly interesting passage of scripture. Beginning here, chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Now, let me just stop right there before I read any further in verse 1. The language in the original Greek is very emphatic. The uh, Greek commentator, Bruce, says this. There is an emphasis on the idea of the verb. He was going away like one who did not mean to return. In other words, the Greek puts it very emphatic. He went out and departed. Jesus left the temple with the sort of action of a man who was turning his back on the temple without intention to return. And if we just remember what had happened previously in chapter 23, we can understand why, right? Jesus' confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees had sort of reached its pinnacle, its peak in chapter 23, right? With this great series of, of rebukes and denunciations that Jesus gave to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the Jews. And after that, Jesus would have no more to say to them and really no more to say about them because for the most part, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 was not primarily directed to the scribes and Pharisees, but to the multitudes about the scribes and Pharisees. And we almost sense in verse one, sort of a measure of almost disgust with Jesus. He's tired of the Jews. Jewish religious authorities. He's tired of this idolatry of the temple, and in a very emphatic way, he's turning his back on the temple and he's leaving the temple grounds. Now, I imagine, and again, I admit, I'm just, I'm just sort of imposing this on the text, but but the sort of flavor of the Greek text sort of gives the idea that Jesus is is is, is angry, or his eyes are still filled with tears from the weeping over Jerusalem that we saw at the end of chapter twenty three. Correct. And so as he's sort of still weeping, there's still tears in his eyes as he was wept over Jerusalem in in sort of this this demonstrative way. He turns his back and he leaves the temple. Let's start again, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. It's very interesting. Jesus leaves the temple. He turns his back. He's walking away from the temple, sort of with a preoccupied or or, or sullen or, or, or downcast look because he's just been weeping over Jerusalem and weeping over the tragedy of the religious leaders. And then finally, it says there, the disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, what was this temple like? This temple, commonly called the second temple, the temple that stood in Jesus' day, was one of the wonders of the ancient world. After the destruction of Solomon's temple, the temple was originally built by Zerubbabel and Ezra. You can find that in Ezra chapter 6. Now, Herod the Great, who ruled when Jesus was born, greatly expanded and improved the temple itself and the whole temple area. This temple was the center of Jewish life for almost a thousand years, so much so that it was customary to swear by the temple, Matthew 23 tells us that, and speaking against the temple could be considered blasphemy, Acts chapter 6 tells us that. Now, Josephus tells us that for eight whole years, Herod the Great kept ten thousand men at work working on the temple. And for its magnificence, for its stateliness, it exceeded Solomon's temple. And after Herod's work, the temple was huge. It was nearly 500 yards or meters long and 400 yards or meters wide. Herod's plan for rebuilding the temple started in 19 B.C., And it was only completed in A.D. 63. Of course, well after Herod's death, but the plans that he had drawn up and the work that he had initiated continued until then. Think about it. The temple work that Herod initiated took more than 80 years to complete, and the temple was only finished in this remodeling that Herod initiated only seven years before it was destroyed by the Romans. But understand this. The second temple wasn't just big, it was also beautiful. The Jewish historian Josephus says that the temple was covered with gold plates, and when the sun shone on them, it was blinding to look at. And where there was no gold, there were blocks of marble of such a pure white that from a distance, strangers thought that there was snow on the temple. It was a beautiful, amazing building. And so what did the disciples do? Perhaps Jesus is looking downcast. There's still tears in his eyes from weeping over Jerusalem. He's turned his back on the temple. He's walking away. And you know how it is when somebody's like that. You try to cheer them up, right? Maybe you try to distract them. Oh, well, um, Jesus, um, have you seen how beautiful the temple is? And they try to draw his attention. If you notice there in verse 1, they came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And now notice what Jesus' response was. He responds by saying in verse 2, Do you not see all these things? Now there's a little bit of a contrast there in the ancient Greek. You see it in the English as well. The disciples wanted Jesus to look at the beautiful buildings. Jesus told them to turn around and take a look at those things. What they regarded as beautiful buildings, Jesus turned around and said, They're just things. They're just things. Don't too highly prize the temple. And then Jesus gives a dramatic statement in verse 2 where he says, Not one stone shall be left here upon another. Now, some 40 years after Jesus said this, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans in Palestine. And they enjoyed many early successes against the Romans. But ultimately, The Roman legions crushed the rebels. And in AD 70, Jerusalem was leveled, including the temple, just as Jesus said would happen. It is said that Titus did not want to burn or destroy the temple. But but one of his soldiers, it said, in sort of a drunken you know stupor, started to burn and threw a torch where it shouldn't have gone, and it began to burn, and the whole temple was burned. And it said that that ornate gold work trickled down through the cracks in the temple, and so it was dismantled stone by stone to retrieve the gold. And the tragedy of it. That it's said that at the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews of the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. And Roman soldiers surrounded it. And then when that one drunken soldier started the fire, thousands or hundreds of Jews, however many were inside, were engulfed and incinerated within the structure. Now again, that temple was so thoroughly destroyed in the first century that today, modern archaeologists have a difficult time understanding, and there's some debate among archaeologists as to exactly where that temple stood. And again, the building was huge, The, the, the stones were big, but it was dismantled stone by stone, Piece by piece. Now I want you to notice something. When Jesus says in verse 2, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Understand that that prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled literally. There was a real temple. Was Jesus speaking about a symbolic temple when he said that? No. It was a real temple. And it was really destroyed. The literal fulfillment of this prophecy establishes the tone for the rest of the prophecies in the chapter. We should expect a literal fulfillment of those prophecies as well. And so Jesus's question, excuse me, Jesus's prediction there in verse two brings up a remarkable question or series of questions from the disciples. Look now at verse three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, now can you picture this, right? The Mount of Olives is across a ravine. You come down from the Temple Mount, you'd go through a brief little valley, you'd go up on the Mount of Olives, and from the Mount of Olives you can overlook the Temple Mount. And you can just picture it. Jesus is leaving the Temple area. He's downcast, he's dejected, his eyes are still filled with tears from weeping over Jerusalem. The disciples try to distract him. Jesus predicts the destruction of the Temple. And the disciples can't believe it. They can't believe that Jesus would say that this magnificent structure that was the center of Judaism would be destroyed and dismantled stone by stone. And so they don't say anything until they walk up the Mount of Olives. And then when Jesus sits with his disciples, they can't resist asking him any longer. And they finally ask him the questions in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, it's kind of interesting. You could break that apart and come up with three questions that the disciples asked. When will these things be? In other words, Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed? The other question was, and what will be the sign of your coming... And if you want to make a third question, you could say, and of the end of the age. Now, you know what's interesting about this? In the disciples' mind, it was probably all one question. Because in the mind of the disciples, they figured that if the temple was going to be destroyed, it would be the end of the age. It would be this. In their mind, it may very well have been one entire question, but instead Jesus is going to answer the questions separately in a way, and he is going to, now removed from the temple, yet overlooking it, Jesus is going to ask these excuse me, answer these questions. And you could say that it was an appropriate time for this kind of discourse from Jesus. The religious leaders had thoroughly rejected Jesus, and they would soon deliver him to the Romans for crucifixion. He knew the bitter fate awaiting Jerusalem, and he wanted to give hope and confidence to the disciples who would soon be greatly tested. So they asked, when will it be, Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed, and what will be the sign of your coming? They asked two questions, actually, some say three, but it's the second question, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age that Jesus focuses his answer on in the rest of the chapter? Now, it may very well be that they asked this second question as they remembered the events surrounding the first temple's destruction. Solomon's temple was destroyed in the context of national judgment, and exile. And that may very well think They're thinking, well, if this temple is destroyed as well, what will it mean for the people of Israel? As Jesus is going to answer this important second question, he's going to make many specific comments and predictions about the end times. And these predictions, as I've said before, they have been the source of significant disagreement among Christians who have tried to understand them. Now, the question comes up for this. Why didn't Jesus simply say it so clearly that there was no possibility anyone could misunderstand him? Why didn't Jesus say, Okay, guys, I just want you to know, nothing much is going to happen for about 2,000 years. Why didn't Jesus say such a thing? Well, listen, I'll tell you why. Number one, one reason why prophecy may seem vague or imprecise is because I earnestly believe that God wants every age, every generation, to have reason to be ready for Jesus' return. If Jesus would have said, Okay guys, I want you to know, I'm not returning in glory for at least 2,000 years, what would have happened in the last 2,000 years? God has a real purpose in desiring that every generation have a reason to believe that Jesus is coming soon. And I would say this, the wrong way for us to think of history is to think of history moving upon a line towards an edge, which would be the consummation of all things. No, no, I would say this, that history has been moving along that line all the way up until the day of Pentecost, the edge of the consummation of all things. And then, on the day of Pentecost, things took a parallel turn alongside the end of the age, and it has been the end time since that time. Other people have suggested that God's intention in not being as clear on prophetic things as we might wish was to keep the future somewhat vague and clouded to confound the devil. You know, it's sort of interesting when you take a look at the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Aren't they much clearer looking back than they are looking forward? Well, one of the reasons that people have suggested for that Is that God kept the prophecies of the Messiah somewhat vague, somewhat mysterious, so as not to tip his hand completely to the devil? Now, listen, though some prophetic interpretations are different, we are sure of this. We are sure that he is coming again, and we are sure that we must be ready. Now, as we start in chapter, excuse me, verse 4 now of chapter 24. What you're going to get from me is mostly my understanding of this. And I do it without apology. From time to time, I'll touch on the understanding that other people have of this passage. But let's jump into it together now, starting at verse 4. Now, if I make a general heading of this section, I describe it the flow of history until Jesus' return. Look now at verses 4 through 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. I find it very significant that the first thing Jesus tells his disciples in verse 4 is that they should take heed that no one deceives you. From the very outset, Jesus warned the disciples that many would be deceived as they anticipated his return. And there have been times in the history of the church when rash predictions were made and then relied upon, resulting in great disappointment, disillusionment, and falling away. I could give you several examples of this through church history. Let me tell you one. It was in prophetic expectation in starting around the years 1946 with a man named William Miller in the United States. Because of prophetic interpretations calculations, publications, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the United States who were absolutely convinced that Jesus would return. I think the date is 1948. I can't remember right now immediately whether it was 46 or 48, but it was 1846 or 1848. And when Jesus did not return in the predicted year, there was a tremendous disappointment with some falling away and with some cultic groups that were spawned from that prophetic fervor. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they came forth from the disappointment with William Miller's predictions. The the, the Mormons, uh, another very big influence from William Miller's predictions. And so what we have is these sort of things happening because people were deceived by prophetic expectations. So what does Jesus say? Look at what he says in verse 6. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass But the end is not yet. Now please notice, the things that Jesus mentions in verses 4 through 8 are not the specific signs of the end. Things like false messiahs, wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, they have certainly marked man's history since the time of Jesus' ascension into heaven. But they are not specific signs of the end. Again, I want you to call your attention to that phrase in verse 6. It's often neglected. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet. It's almost as if Jesus was saying this. Okay, guys, you've asked me what will be the sign of the end of the age? What will be the sign of my coming? When well, Jesus is saying, well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not false messiahs. It's not wars. It's not famines. It's not pestilences. It's not earthquakes. Those things are not the signs of the end. Now, in a few verses, Jesus will point to a very specific sign of the end. But think about it. In the midst of any great war, or any great famine, or any great earthquake, it's natural to believe that the world is coming to an end. But Jesus said that there would be a far more specific sign that would indicate his return. And he's going to describe this in a few verses. Although I do have to call your attention to a phrase in verse 8, where Jesus says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, none of these events are the specific sign of the end. No specific war, no specific earthquake, no specific famine, or pestilence, or false messiah collectively, we can say they're a sign. Why can we say that? Because Jesus described these calamities as the beginning of sorrows. And literally, the phrase he used in the ancient Greek was that they are the beginning of labor pains. Just as it is true with labor pains, not that I've experienced them myself, but I've observed them firsthand three times over with my wife, we should expect that the things mentioned, such as wars and famines and earthquakes in verse 7, that they would become more frequent and more intense before the return of Jesus, without any one of them being the specific sign of the end. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, just as... Before a woman gives birth, the labor pains become more intense and more frequent. We should expect that wars and famines and false messiahs and pestilences and these things become more frequent and more intense before the end. And I would say there's a pretty strong argument that through the 20th century and now into the 21st century, that these things indeed have become more intense and more frequent. If you just want to give one example of that, war. War. There has never been a century where more people have been slaughtered in war, slaughtered in genocide than the 20th century. Nothing even comes close to comparing. And I am supposing that because of the population explosion in the 20th century, you could say the same thing for the death toll from famines, from pestilence, from earthquakes and other natural disasters. Again, This would fit according to our expectation. No single war, no single famine, no single earthquake or pestilence is the sign of the end, but collectively we should expect them to get more frequent and more intense towards the end. Now starting at verse 9, Jesus describes what his disciples must expect during the time between his ascension and his second coming. Okay, Jesus, you've told us that these things, none of them are the specific sign. What's life going to be like for us until you return? Well, he says, starting at verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In these verses, verses 9 through 14, again, I think Jesus is telling his disciples what they should expect in the period after his ascension and before his second coming. He should expect, or excuse me, they should expect to be persecuted. What's it say in verse 9? They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. In the period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes again, His disciples should expect to be persecuted. And this may make his followers believe that the end is near, but that is not a specific sign of his coming. Again, Jesus is building up to a specific sign that he's going to mention. But this isn't it. Now, Hasn't this been a temptation? Haven't Christians during severe times of persecution said, oh, it must be the end of the world. Jesus said, no, you're going to be persecuted. This is what you should expect. Matter of fact, Jesus says something very bitter there to our ears, where he says in verse uh, ten, "Many will betray one another." Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad that Jesus should should tell us to expect that within the church many would betray one another? And then he says, verse eleven that false prophets will arise and deceive many. In the period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes again, the disciples of Jesus would see many false prophets and see them succeed. Did you notice that? Not only will false prophets arise, but they will deceive many. But that also is not the specific sign of his return. Striking phrase there, that they would deceive many. I like what Charles Spurgeon said on this point. He said, Alas, that such teachers would have any disciples. It is doubly sad when they should be able to lead astray many. Yet when it so happens, let us remember that the king said that it would be so. And then he says in verse 12, Lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. Again, what's he telling us? that in the period after Jesus ascends to heaven and before he comes to again, his disciples should expect to see society become worse and worse. But again, I would say that this also is not the specific sign of his return. It's quite a phrase Jesus uses there when he says, the love of many will grow cold because lawlessness abounds. And when you think about that, Love growing cold. It's a tragedy when it happens in the world. Can I say this? It's even a greater tragedy when it happens inside the church. Let, let me say this again from Spurgeon. He gives an outstanding quote on this line. He says this If the heart grows cold, everything will be coldly done. When love declines, what cold preaching we have. All moonlight light without heat, polished like marble, and as chilly. What cold singing we get, pretty music made by pipes and wind, but oh, how little soul singing, how little singing in the Holy Ghost, making melody in the heart unto God. And what poor praying, do you call it praying? What little giving, when the heart is cold, the hands can find nothing in the purse, and Christ's church and Christ poor and the heathen may perish, for we must needs hoard up for ourselves and live to grow rich. Is there anything that goes on as it ought to go when love grows cold? Well, it's bad enough when it happens in the culture. It should never happen in the church. Yet, Nevertheless, verse 14, Jesus says, what should the business of the church be about in this period between his ascension and his glorious second coming? It should be verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world is a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Jesus also promised that before the end, the gospel would go out to the whole world. And isn't that a glorious promise? The persecution, the false prophets, the the general downgrade of society into lawlessness and love grow cold that would not prevent the spread of the gospel. Now, some people claim that this has already been done, that the kingdom has been preached. And let me say... I just happened to hear within the last month or so, perhaps the most convincing argument you could make to say that all the earth has been reached. I heard a man give a presentation where he discussed how evangelism is happening over the internet and how every nation on earth is being touched evangelistically right now over the internet. People are coming to Jesus Christ through the witness brought to them over the internet from every nation upon the earth. Now, some people validly make the argument that when Jesus used the word nation here, that'll be written as, as in, that'll this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. He didn't have in mind a nation state the way we have it today. The ancient Greek word that he used was. Ethne, which could be translated ethnic groups or people groups. And if you divide up the world into people groups, you can make the argument that not every people group has been reached effectively for Christ yet. But that's another argument entirely. Let's just say this the church is to take this seriously as their duty to get the gospel out to all the earth. However, we should say this that God has assured that this will happen. Revelation chapter 14 tells us that before the end, there will be an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And listen, I don't say that in the slightest way, to depress the fervor and the sense of responsibility that Christians should have in spreading the gospel all over the earth. I'm just trying to tell you that the book of Revelation says that this absolutely will happen before the end. But it's our job to make it happen as much as possible lies within us in our own generation. So that's what Jesus says. Now, when we come to verse 15, I think we come to the focus point of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Notice what he says beginning at verse 15. Therefore, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Now hold on just for a moment there. I think now that Jesus has turned the focus upon what will be the sign of his coming. Hey, disciples, you wanted to know what will be the sign of my coming in the end of the age? Here it is, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Now, what is an abomination of desolation? Essentially, that phrase speaks of the ultimate desecration of a Jewish temple, the establishment of, of an idolatrous image in the holy place itself. That's the abomination, which will inevitably bring the judgment of God. It is the abomination, the idolatry, that brings desolation. In the vocabulary of Judaism at that time, an abomination was an especially offensive form of idolatry. And Jesus described a gross form of idolatry standing where? In the holy place. And that would bring great destruction or desolation. Now please notice this. It says standing in the holy place. This means that the abomination of desolation takes place in the Jewish temple. That is the only plain meaning of the phrase holy place now some believe that it happened in the prior Jewish temple in 70 AD others more properly I believe think that it will happen in the holy place of a rebuilt temple now friends here we come to one of the critical interpretive turning points of Matthew chapter 24. Has the abomination of desolation already occurred? I say, absolutely not. I know many teachers that I respect, many teachers that I think are good Bible teachers would disagree with me on this point. But I say it without reservation, by the most plain meaning of the words and by what Jesus says in this chapter would happen subsequently... I say without reservation that the abomination desolation has not happened yet. Well, let me say this. If it has not happened yet, and if it must happen in the future, that means that there must be a rebuilt Jewish temple. Now, for centuries, there was only a small Jewish presence in Judea and Jerusalem. Their presence in the region was definite and continuous, but it was small. And it was unthinkable that this weak Jewish presence could rebuild a temple. Therefore, the fulfillment of this prophecy was highly unlikely until Israel was gathered again as a nation in 1948. And the restoration of a nation that the world had not seen for some 2,000 years is a remarkable event in the fulfillment and future fulfillment of prophecy. You have to say, without a re-established nation of Israel, there is no rebuilt temple. And without a rebuilt temple, there is no future abomination of desolation. And I believe that the temple will be built again. Did you know that there is a very dedicated group of Jews in Israel right now that are absolute you could say, fanatical about rebuilding the temple? Now, I don't want to overblow this. It's a small group. It's a minority. The the majority of Jews in Israel could care less about rebuilding the temple. But there is a strong and you could almost say fanatic group of people who are trying to reestablish the temple rituals and would love to see a way for that temple to be brought back. And they want to see it done. And I believe that it will be done. I think it will be done as a part of the great end time scenario. I believe that the man who rises to political power in the end days, who is popularly but sometimes imprecisely called the Antichrist, that one of his great crowning achievements will be this ability to make a peace treaty in Israel that will give the permission to build a temple again. Now again those who believe that the events of Matthew chapter 24 were all or mostly all fulfilled in A.D. 70 have a difficulty here because there's no good evidence at all that what they believe is the abomination of desolation. And what they would say is that the abomination of desolation was the Roman armies or the ensigns that the armies carried. There's no evidence that those armies Ever set up an idolatrous image in the holy place of the temple. Instead, the temple was destroyed before the Romans ever entered in. Therefore, those with this interpretive approach often redefine what the holy place is. I'll give you one example. This commentator, Bruce, he says, one naturally thinks of the temple or the holy city and its environment, but a holy place in the prophetic style, might mean the holy land. No, sir, I respect you as a commentator, but I kindly disagree. I would say that holy place in the prophetic style means holy place, the temple itself. By the way, D.A. Carson says this, that the normal meaning of hagios topos, holy place, is the temple complex. But by the time that the Romans had actually desecrated the temple in AD 70, it was too late for anybody in the city to flee. I want you to notice this too. Verse 15 says this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, do you understand that when Jesus brings up the subject of the abomination of desolation, he's not being original. He's pointing us back to Daniel the prophet. The mention of the abomination of desolation is taken from the book of Daniel, where it says this, They shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. And this describes a complete desecration of the temple. Now this was prefigured by Antiochus Epiphanes in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But please notice, it wasn't fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes, otherwise Jesus would not have said that it was yet to come. Do you understand the logic there? Jesus is pointing back and letting us know that even though Antiochus Epiphanes prefigured this when he came into the temple grounds and slaughtered a pig in the temple and set up idolatrous images, even though he prefigured the fulfillment of the abomination and desolation, he did not completely fulfill it because Jesus says it is still future in his day. You know, the Apostle Paul elaborated on the future fulfillment of this in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read you verses 3 and 4 from Second Thessalonians 2. He says, That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Did you notice that? Paul speaks of the abomination of desolation in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then Daniel 12 also speaks of the abomination of desolation. Daniel 12 says this, that from the time of the daily sacrifices taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days until the end. Do you understand what Daniel told us? He said that when the abomination of desolation is set up, you can start marking off the days of your calendar, 1,290 days, approximately three and a half years, and then the end will come. Did you understand? Jesus makes pains to impress this upon us, that he's speaking of what Daniel said. That's why he points out, whoever reads, let him understand. And he's just saying, I'm just telling you what Daniel told you, right? Didn't Daniel say that the pivotal sign of the end would be this abomination of desolation and that 1,290 days afterwards, the end would come? Please understand this. Jesus makes it very plain that the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel has not happened yet. Now, through the centuries, the most common interpretive approach to the predictions that Jesus made in this chapter is to see them all, or mostly all, fulfilled in the great destruction that came upon Jerusalem and Judea in AD 70. Now, this approach is attractive in some ways, especially... In that it makes the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 34, easy to understand. We're not going to get to this verse in depth until next week, but can you just look at verse 34 right now in Matthew chapter 24? Verse 34 says this Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Now, if all or mostly all of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 happened in A.D. 70, that verse, that word of Jesus is very easy to understand. Oh, Jesus said this generation would not pass away. Approximately 40 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed. That must be what he's talking about. Yet the approach that sees this chapter as all or mostly fulfilled in A.D. 70 Is completely inadequate in its supposed fulfillment of the abomination of desolation. In this approach, the abomination of desolation is almost always understood to be the Roman armies or the ensigns that the legions carried. Yet when we understand the importance of what is said about this event and the importance of the abomination of desolation, we must give priority to this event. In other words, Friends, the focus of this chapter is not what Jesus said in verse 34 about this generation. We'll get to that next week. The focus of this chapter is what Jesus says about the abomination of desolation. Don't you think it's fascinating that Jesus says in verse 15, Whoever reads, let him understand. Now, I don't know about your Bible, but in my Bible, those words are in black. It's a little line of black in a sea of red. In other words, the printers of this Bible are assuming that that's Matthew's addition, not what Jesus said. I protest the printing of this Bible. I believe that Jesus spoke those words as well, right? Jesus points us back to Daniel, does he not, in verse uh, 15? And then he says, when you're reading Daniel, you better understand But let me tell you, even if it was Matthew writing it instead of Jesus saying it, it's still just as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, whoever reads, let him understand. The focus of this chapter is the abomination of desolation, not the this generation. And therefore, whatever interpretive approach we bring to this chapter, it has to center on the abomination of desolation. It is the critical sign mentioned in Matthew 24. It is the warning to flee mentioned in Matthew 24. It is the sign of the consummation of all things in Daniel chapter 9. It is the sign foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 11. It is the precise marker of days to the end in Daniel chapter 12. It is the revelation of the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it is the image of the beast mentioned in Revelation chapter 13. Taking all these passages collectively in their most plain meaning, the abomination of desolation cannot be the Roman armies or the ensigns that they marched under. It cannot be totalitarian governments or any other conjecture. The abomination of desolation must be some kind of idolatrous image set up by the Antichrist, set in an actual temple, and this is the decisive sign of the end. This means that for the most part, Jesus' predictions in Matthew 24 have not been fulfilled, or at least that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a foreshadowing of their fulfillment, even as the desecration of the temple under Antiochus Epiphanes was a foreshadowing of the ultimate abomination of desolation. So don't miss the point. Jesus is making it very clear where he says in verse 15, whoever reads, let him understand. Now, what happens when the abomination of desolation is set up? Let's start now. I'm going to start again at verse 15, but we're going to go all the way through verse 21. Ready? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever, excuse me, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who with nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Now please notice this. Starting at verse 16, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation, flee. These are the warnings, by the way, specifically addressed to Israelites in the region of Judea. When he mentions Judea, verse 16, when he mentions housetops in verse 17, when he mentions the Sabbath in verse 20, they all speak to a Jewish-Israeli environment where they commonly have patios on their housetops, where they're in Judea, where they would respect the Sabbath day. What Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, a refugee's problems are bad enough without additional impediments like winter or pregnancy or Sabbath days. Now, in light of the broader context of this chapter These words of Jesus should be understood as having primary application to those who see the abomination of desolation in the very last days during the Great Tribulation, events that are yet to occur. Let me just say this on verse 21, even though really this is going to be where we end off for the evening and we're going to start in verse 21 in more depth next week. But let me tell you that in verse 21, Jesus said something about the Great Tribulation that it will be the worst time on planet Earth. Now let me say that this right here argues that this was not fulfilled in 70 AD. Now please don't get me wrong. The destruction of Jerusalem, the slaughter of the Jews, and the desolation of Judea by the Roman legions, it was an unbelievable disaster and calamity and slaughter upon the Jewish people. But I don't think you can argue that it's the worst thing that's happened in history. I did some reading not too long ago at what Attila the Hun and his armies did as they swept out from China and Mongolia and swept westward through the Middle East and into Europe. And let me say, for my reading of history, they did worse. You can talk about world wars. You can talk about unbelievable catastrophes and holocausts that have been visited upon this earth. And to me, I don't buy the argument that as bad as it was in AD 70 that you can actually say that it's the worst period that's ever been visited in human history. No. Sad to say, that is yet to come, predicted by the Great Tribulation and described in great detail in the book of Revelation. But listen. Listen. There is no doubt that in some ways, the catastrophe that came upon Judea, and especially Jerusalem in AD 70, was a prefiguring of that future event. It was an imperfect foreshadow of the ultimate fulfillment. And for this reason, did you know that virtually all Christians fled Jerusalem and Judea in the years leading up to A.D. 70, when the Roman armies arrived in the area intent on putting down the Jewish rebellion in the Roman province of Palestine. But what's interesting about this, what interpreters say is the abomination desolation, the Roman armies and their ensigns coming into Jerusalem, if that were the abomination desolation, then Jesus gave the warning too late. Because it was too late for them to flee once the armies came into Jerusalem. You see, what Jesus was doing was giving them a warning too late if it was all fulfilled back then. But we do not believe that. Or at least I do not. I believe that its ultimate fulfillment is yet to happen. Yet it was prefigured in the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Christians looked at that and put two and two together and fled Sadly, the Jewish people did. Instead, they crammed themselves into Jerusalem. The population of Jerusalem, instead of shrinking when the Roman armies arrived, it swelled and there were all the more Jews slaughtered when Jerusalem finally fell. But Jesus said instead in verse 16, Then let those in Judea flee. This is because at the appearance of the abomination of desolation, the desolation will first be poured out on Judea, and because the church will not be a factor at this time, I believe, having already been caught up to meet Jesus in the air, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, because Jesus told his disciples about the abomination of desolation, which I believe will be set up by the Antichrist, in the middle of the Great Tribulation, and because he warned them of this coming destruction called the Great Tribulation, some Christians believe that all Christians will go through the Great Tribulation. And to them it seems evident. Why would Jesus say these things to his disciples if his disciples would not experience them? Well, to me the answer is simple. We know from this passage and from many other scriptural passages that God will remove his church before the fury of the great tribulation, catching them away to meet Jesus in the air. Again, that's according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Yet this information is valuable for the followers of Jesus so that they can understand something of his plan for the future. The information is especially valuable for those who will become his disciples in the Great Tribulation after the church is gone. We do very well to remember that the disciples who heard Jesus say these words, virtually none of them saw, or none of them saw any of these things, yet it was still good for them to hear it. And even if Christians do not go into the great tribulation, it will be good for them, and for those who will become Christians in the tribulation, it will be good for them to know what will happen during that time. Jesus spoke to all ages. So, the abomination of desolation comes, fury will be poured out, verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. That's where we're going to pick it up next week. But let me just give you a broad overview here, right? Verse 21, then there will be great tribulation. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the son of man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Friends, can I tell you just right up front, This is why I believe the abomination of desolation has not yet happened. Why the great tribulation has not yet happened. Because Jesus has not yet returned in glory. If Jesus has already returned to glory in this earth, might I say it's a mighty big disappointment then. But no, Jesus promised after the real abomination of desolation will come this great tribulation, a period of suffering a calamity absolutely unequaled on earth. And if you read the book of Revelation, you understand why it will be so unequaled. And then immediately after that tribulation, the glorious return of Jesus. Friends, this is mostly in the future, even though the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 in some ways prefigured it, it has yet to be finally fulfilled. Next time we're together, we're going to start again at verse 21. But let me sort of give you the end point of all of this. Be ready. Be ready. It really is. Did you know that you could be a prophetic expert? You could know how to slice the prophetic sausage so thin that, you know, you boy, you're an absolute expert when it comes to prophecy. But if you're not personally ready for the return of Jesus Christ, I say you don't know anything about prophecy. What this should do is prompt us to say, Lord, am I ready? Am I living every day of my life in a condition of readiness for your return so that if you return today, if you return tonight, I would not be ashamed, but I would be ready in my heart, in my life, in my walk, in my witness because I'm living for you. I'll say it again. That is the essential teaching of prophecy. And if you miss that, it doesn't matter how much else you have right. What's most important is to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, that we would be ready and that we would live our lives in a state of readiness for the return of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to hold prophetic truth and proper prophetic interpretation in the right way, in a spirit of charity with Christians who may disagree with us. But yet, Lord, in a confidence in the truth of your return, and most of all, in a constant state of readiness for your return. Help us to do that. Lord, we want to be ready. We want to be anticipating your return. Help us to be so in Jesus' name. Amen.